You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hello, hello. Good day to you. Today we are talking about a number of topics, including what it really means to be an ally. And we're going to look at the distinction between allies and accomplices. You know, this week I just hosted a a session that I I loved working with this group on healthy relationships as a key component of DEI and justice work. And it was with community and government reps in Southern Ontario. Uh, And I think that you know, a big part of DEI or justice work that's left out is just the relationship piece around interracial relationships, mixed orientation relationships. And Brennan and I, of course, have talked about our personal experience, but the leaving out of these topics, their absence, I think, is at a huge cost. So we're going to get into that shortly. Quick reminder, since we're on the topic, we have an old podcast on our interracial and our mixed orientation (laughs) relationship where we talk a little bit. Well, really, I talk about my needs and Brandon weighs in. So if you can go back and have a listen to that one and please share. It's a few years old, but but still relevant. So we're going to dive into that, but we're also going to be talking about a really important study out of York University. Brandon's alma mater, but... Yeah, back in the day. But as Canadians, we don't really say that. I don't think we have the same attachments to our schools, do we? No, I don't. I had a good time (laughs) there, but not like it is in the U.S. Yeah, it's not the same. Really quickly before we dive in, I I just want to offer an option for people to opt out in terms of we want to give you a content warning. So we will be talking about self-harm and suicide data, just the data, but if this topic maybe isn't aligned with your... Comfort right now, take a moment to maybe save this for later or opt out of this one altogether. And uh, we're going to be talking now with Anthony Chum, the Canadian Research Chair in Population Health Data Science at York University. His research approach combines population health data science, so big data analysis, and the application of social theory, so intersectionality, social ecological theory, minority stress theory, for example, to investigate the social determinants of health and to look at interventions at eliminating these health disparities. Uh, In a recent study, Cham's research found that bisexual women are three times more likely to attempt suicide versus hetero women. And gay men and lesbians are also twice as likely as straight people to enact suicide-related behaviors. And in order to get a broader picture beyond just, you know, self-reported data, which will be obviously missing outcomes for folks who aren't here, your research team looked at health records for more than 123,000 individuals in Ontario, which were linked to the Canadian Community Health Survey, which provides data on demographics like sexuality and, and location. So thank you with that long introduction. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. And uh, all right, well, let's let's start with the research. Why are you doing this research? Why is it so essential? Yeah, so as you mentioned before, some of the reasons why we did the research was that prior studies mostly was driven by survey. And surveys have the problem of selection bias, which is particularly uh, important in the uh, case of suicidality since you know people who have suicide attempts or have died by suicide cannot be there to answer the surveys so that is a huge issue with the prior research and then another issue that we found was that prior research relies on samples that were convenient samples so these are surveys that are targeted and disseminated by for example lgbt community organizations or apps and there's going to be a, a community of people that are not reachable through um, normal channels, maybe in rural communities or Northern Ontario, 
or Northern Canada uh, that are not very well connected to the LGBTQ community who are going to be missed out in these previous surveys. So using health administrative data, which is the data that we get through OHIP, hospitalization records, clinical records, we're better able to capture suicide events from a healthcare perspective. So in changing the research methodology, the sampling to eliminate some most of that sampling bias, you're not using convenient samples. I'm curious, were the key findings, I know I gave an overview, but you can give us more, are the key findings very different than what were, you know, what they found in previous studies because they were missing this accurate data? So what we found was that, so in epidemiology, we tend to talk about person years. So what that means is what happens to one person in a single year, right? So um, when we look at heterosexual individuals, there's around 200 events per 100,000 person year. So in a population of about 100,000 people in a single year, we would expect 200 events. That's the general population uh, number of events. In gay and lesbian individuals, that number jumps to 650 per 100,000 person year. And then in bisexual individuals, what we found was a number over 5,900 events per 100,000 person. So you could see the stark differences. You know, th these are the unadjusted numbers. So this is not accounting for things like, you know, the bisexual community being slightly younger than the general population or that they tend to have lower socioeconomic status. So these things are risk factors as well for suicide-related events. And we found that when we adjusted for all of these risk factors, bisexual is three times more likely. But what that also means, though, is that the three times more likely actually hides some of the nuances, which is that the bisexual community actually is younger. They are more female. There are more female people in amongst the bisexual communities, they are also of lower socioeconomic status. So all of these factors actually can contribute to higher suicide-related events as well. And so in terms of explanation for these outcomes, so you talk about age, you talk about socioeconomic status, but also um, stigma, harm, harassment, discrimination. What did you find? I obviously did a big literature review. What do we know about these other social determinants of health that are putting queer folks and specifically bisexual folks at risk? So in terms of bisexual women, I'll highlight that first and I'll talk about things more generally. For bisexual women, their in increased risk, even relative to lesbian and gay folks, relates to the fact that often they're um, much more likely to be targeted for intimate partner violence. So we know that, you know, approximately a very large proportion of women are experienced intimate partner violence, but this is much higher. It's actually two to three times higher in bisexual women than heterosexual women and lesbians. So this is one of the issues is the intimate partner violence. So we'll, we'll go with what you just said around intimate partner violence. And so other social determinants of health that put bisexual folks at risk. There are a number of risk factors. We know, for example, rejection from family is a big one. Another one is, you know, being targeted on social media, bullying at school. So these are all sort of individual level risk factors. But then there's also sort of policy and societal level risk factors. We know that, for example, between the years 2019 and 2021, hate crimes in Canada targeting LGBTQ plus individuals increased by 60%. Also, there's a number of different policies. So we know, for example, in New Brunswick, there's new rules requiring parental consent 
for any sort of name change or pronoun changes, which can put certain people at risk for coming out to their families before they're ready to, which also then, in, you know, in turn can affect their mental health, increase their suicide related behaviors. So, you know, we have to think about both the individual level and societal level risk factors. You know, uh, the human rights campaign, for example, in the US issued a national emergency call, call to action for LGBTQ Americans because of the number of uh, policies such as anti-drag sort of policies, policies that require teachers to out students if they find that they're LGBTQ to their families, as well as, you know, don't say gay. You might know about that bill as well. So, you know, things are not necessarily like necessarily moving towards progress for the LGBTQ community, especially in 2023. So we have to keep you know, in mind all of these sort of policy and societal issues as well that can affect suicide-related behaviors. So, you know, we've seen previous research indicating that trans youth, for example, in Canada are at a significant, uh, I think last year the data said five times higher risk of suicide than cis youth. So were trans and non-binary folks a part of your sample? Were you were you able to extract, extract some of that data or is it aggregated? So trans and non-binary folks are included in this study. But it's, it's not a sort of focus of this study. We have another study happening right now that is looking at trans and non-binary folks specifically. We're also looking at um, the impact of gender-affirming care uh, and therapies and what happens when you, you know, implement this care and what happens when you take it away. As you know, you know, a few years back in Ontario, we delisted a cross-sex hormone therapy back in 2016. So that's no longer covered by the public drug plan, for example. So, you know, these the taking away of the uh, hormone therapy can also affect people's suicide-related behavior. Of course, when you're forced not, to not live as yourself and there are extra barriers. And just for a little bit of context for American and international listeners, we have single-payer system here in Canada, which means each province, which is like our states, pays for medical care. Like that's that's the way, you know, I have to go to the doctor, for example, today. Uh, I'm actually going to the OBGYN for a follow-up and I don't I don't think about paying for that because it's a single payer system where I don't want to say I don't pay for it. I pay for it through my taxes and I'm I'm happy to do that just as an aside. Okay, so you've you talked a little bit about some of the, you know, anti-trans bills, anti-queer bills. What do we need to see in terms of the opposite of that based on your study findings that show that queer folks are at such greater risk? And this is just one negative health outcome. Of course, there are many. Uh, what policy changes do we need? Are, what call to actions should we be considering to ensure the safety of LGBTQIA plus folks? So I think maybe I'll speak about more generally for the general population, but then also, you know, to mental health practitioners, teachers, and people sort of in positions of power. So I would say, you know, stay informed about LGBTQ health issues, terminology, current research, you know, try to understand the unique challenges and disparities faced by LGBTQ individuals. Try to update your knowledge and seek, you know, any opportunities to learn more about this in, in this area. There's resources out there like uh, Rainbow Health Ontario, for example, which is a great community-based organization, a program that educates folks about LGBTQ issues, including teachers or mental health professionals, you know, about how how to deal with LGBTQ individuals in their practice. You know, thinking about, you know, we have a shortage of GPs in, in Canada right now and in Ontario specifically. Uh, so accessing mental health care is quite difficult. And, you know, even getting your GP to 
you know, I have people telling me, you know, they're going to GPs, but they don't even know about PrEP, for example, for HIV prevention. So there's needs to be a, a greater education amongst healthcare professionals as well mm -hmm. about LGBTQ issues. So, you know, that could start even by creating a more welcoming environment in the clinic. So, you know, try to create a safe and affirming space for LGBTQ patients, you know, maybe try to display LGBTQ plus friendly symbols, literature, resources in the clinic. Uh, train your staff to use inclusive language and respect patients' chosen names and pronouns. These are some of the issues. Another thing that I could talk about maybe is screening for mental health concerns. So, you know, amongst even teachers and, and you know, people in sort of positions of power and clinicians regularly assess the mental health of uh, LGBTQ folks. In terms of the clinical practice, you can incorporate questions about sexual orientation, gender identity, experiences of discrimination into your routine assessment. Pay attention to signs of depression, anxiety, substance use, self-harm, things like that. Offer resources. Actually, this is a really good one. And if you're if you have a friend who is LGBTQ individuals who is experiencing some of these issues, maybe you don't have the resources to provide, you know, help. But you can try to connect your friend to relevant community resources, support groups, social organizations. So, you know, provide information about um, LGBTQ friendly therapists, helplines, online forums, support networks can be vital for the person's well-being. So even if, you know, you're just a regular person, you know, and you have friends or family who are experiencing problems, try to educate yourself and learn about these resources that are available and then offer them to your friend or family. Let me see. I, I, I find these really helpful. Sorry, um, I think one one piece is that we we're raised in a culture that is patriarchal, that is homophobic, that is inherently transphobic. All of us. I'm queer, and I hold these values. Just like so many of us, we can be people of color and still have internalized racism. It's a constant having to work against it, a constant undoing. And I think one of the steps that gets missed is rooted in perfectionism. This notion that we cannot, like, I'm not homophobic. I'm not transphobic. I can't possibly be. And I was having that conversation with a family member yesterday. It was around actually racial bias. And it's a white family member. And he was like, no, I don't, I'm not racist at all. That can't be why I'm thinking this about this person. He was basically saying this person with an accent was, I think the word he used was stupid and dumb. And I said, maybe, you, you know, it has to do with our perceptions around accents. He said, no, I don't hold any racial bias. And so how do we even begin to chip away at racial bias if we can't acknowledge that our culture is rooted in it? You're not a bad person for holding racial bias. Like, we all have it. She, this, this woman, to give you some context, is Chinese. I am also Chinese, and I acknowledge that I hold my own biases against my own people, right? Whereas my, you know, white family member was like, no, I can't possibly be racist. I have Chinese family members <laughs> sort of thing. And so the same thing around queer folks, of all of us having to realize that, you know, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or a therapist or a teacher or a friend or just, a, not just, or a community member, we hold these biases. And so we have to actively work against them. Like we have to go do the readings, do the workbooks, check ourselves, right? When we think that we think something because we're neutral, just stop and say, okay, is there a little piece holding me back here? Is there a piece that's pushing me over the line? And and not be hard on ourselves, right? Like if we're so afraid of being wrong, then we can't undo the work because we'll never admit that, hey, you know what, I actually struggle with this. Uh, and I think that's been 
you know, at the front of the conversation for a couple of years. I think it was stronger in 2020 and we need to bring it back and not kind of take our, our foot off the pedal. So as individuals, you mentioned like the Rainbow Health Network in Ontario, and I'll leave some links in the show notes as well, folks. But um, like today, what is, can you think of something we can do today as individuals to support the mental health or overall health of our LGBTQIA plus loved ones, whether you know them or not, because it, they, I mean, human love, people in our community. What can we do yeah, today? Yeah, so I would say speak out against discrimination, stigmatization, marginalization of LGBTQ people, advocate for policies that protect their rights. Learn about your, what your policymakers are, what their platforms are, right? I know in Toronto specifically, we have a Tor- Toronto mayoral election coming up. And there are certain candidates that have anti-LGBTQ policies. So learn about, you know, who you're voting for and be an ally and support the broad LGBTQ community. Absolutely. We uh, we pre-voted because we're back on the road tonight. But uh, yeah, we have a, a big election coming up. And it's interesting. I don't know if it's the same in American cities, but in Toronto, like there's, I don't know how many people on the ballot. It looked like there were like 50 of them or something like 40, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you had to really weed in there to find, find your candidate. Is there anything else you want people to know with relation to your work overall or this research study specifically? Yeah, we have new studies coming out about substance use disparities across um, sexual orientations. We also are going to take advantage of the census. So in Canada, actually, it's the first census in the world to ask about gender identity back in the last census. And that information is coming out. So we do have over 100,000 trans and non-binary folks that have been identified in the census. So we'll be looking at their sort of health trajectories from a healthcare point of view as well, to try to get a deep understanding of the trans and non-binary part of our community. Okay, great. Yeah, and uh, folks can follow along with your research. We'll make sure we leave your Twitter handle and your links as well um, for the work you're doing at York University in partnership with other community organizations. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your research. Thank you so much. Now, the language of ally came up in that conversation, and and I think it's important to talk about what that is. And you may have heard a distinction between ally versus accomplice. And I think I'd like to differentiate between those two terms, but also acknowledge that I obviously am not the arbiter. (laughs) I don't have the perfect definitions. I think in really short form, an ally is a supporter of a cause and an accomplice takes action in the cause, even at the cost of our own privilege. So my friend Adam Maurer from Moon Tower Counseling says, allies are like cheerleaders rooting for you from the sidelines and accomplices are down on the field playing the game with you and other members of the LGBTQIA plus community using their skills to help further the cause, which I think is really funny since Adam hates sports so much. I mean, he's an excellent Frisbee player. (laughs) Adam honestly was like, how can I mess with Dr. Jez here? So whereas, and then Adam goes on to say, accomplices are helping to dismantle the systems that oppress queer people while allies simply boo them. Oh, more sports analogy. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. And then he says, you know, we appreciate the thought, but we actually need the effort. So as I said, I was facilitating a workshop on interracial relationships um, among DEI folks the other day, and we were talking about examples of this. So for example, as an ally, you'd say, yes, I support all gender washrooms at my child's school. I'm on board. Whereas an accomplice, you'd bring the topic up at parents' associations meetings, even if you're met with resistance, even if it affects some of your relationships. You do your own research on how to ensure that washrooms are safe for trans and non-binary staff and students. You work to ensure the implementation of the processes uh, and the facilities. And this is really because 
advocacy onus continues to fall on the laps of queer folks. But as an accomplice, you lighten the load and you don't center yourself. And I want to say, you know, other things that came out of the conversation this week in the session was that, you know, these words, allies, ally, accomplice, they're not titles that you bestow upon yourself. Like one woman was saying that somebody put ally on their resume. It's not like that, okay? I'd look at them more as ongoing actions, right? And as my friend Davin Seabaron, who's also in DEI work, says, allyship and accompliceship is about the person needing support and not the person providing it. So it really is about not centering yourself, which, you know, Brandon, we've talked about that these things can feel hard, but it's really just that they're a little uncomfortable. And we're really just talking about you being uncomfortable versus somebody being unsafe. And those are two very different things. Um, you know, so I, I, I was, was also thinking that so many of us, we fall on both sides. It's not like, oh, here are the people who are allies and accomplices and here are the people that are supporting. But for me, for example, sometimes I am the person who needs the support of an ally or accomplice. And sometimes I have lots more privilege. So I'm, it's my job to act as an ally and accomplice. I agree with you on every single part. It's not that it's hard. It's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Why is it uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable because you're you're standing up for important issues and you're pushing yourself outside of um, complacency. Like you're you're pushing yourself and you're 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 forced to confront white supremacy, all of these issues with people who think that you're okay with them. Well, I've overheard you, and I try not to listen when I hear you on these calls because I just do. No, I don't want to. I don't want to be a part of it, and I don't yeah. want to be the one who's like critiquing you or anything. But I've heard you, for example, on the phone with other realtors. So for context, Brennan is or was in real estate. I don't know what this guy does these days, but I'm not just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard you when they've said things about neighborhoods that are either blatantly racist or coded racism. And I've heard you say the words, well, actually, that's just racism. Like when they talk about different things around school districts. And I know that it's upsetting, like you're potentially burning a bridge with someone with whom you need to work. And I do think, and I'm not here to be like, yay, Brandon, you get a cookie. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I'm saying that that is the difference between being like, yeah, I'm anti-racist and just saying it versus actually doing it. And I'm sure those conversations aren't easy because when you tell someone that these views could be rooted in racism, they hear, I'm a racist. And when, of course, when someone hears I'm a racist, they're like, I'm not, I'm absolutely not, because none of us wants to be racist. But again, it goes back to what we were just talking about, that we all hold these biases, and we have to actively always be working against them. Yeah. And what you just said, speaking up is, in the action itself is not hard, it's just uncomfortable. So I have to learn to be uncomfortable. And the other thing that you said that resonates with me is this idea of allies and accomplices getting get, getting there, like achieving that status. Like I'm and, done. Well, and, and, <laughs> and the way I see it is I can never do enough. I can never read enough. I will never be there. And I think I have to maintain that approach that I need to continue to learn, continue to invest because things are also always changing. And, and so, to be imperfect. Yeah. And right? I, I struggle with that. I definitely struggle with that. But I think the biggest thing, like you just said, is it's just like this idea that you're there. And I think that once you think you're there or somewhere, mm-hmm. I, I'm afraid that I might get complacent. So I never want to feel like I'm there. It's not something I strive to achieve. It's an ongoing process. But somebody might hear that and think, well, that sounds stressful. Like, why would I, why would I, why would I want to put myself through that? Yeah, because it's important, because all of these things are important. And I think because the outcomes of your discomfort and your stress, and I'm not saying they're not real because you've got one nervous system and we all only know our own individual nervous systems. Like if you have stress and it's related to fragility or something like that, it's still stress. It's real stress in your body. 
and when we talk about the research and the health outcomes, so suicide ideation, suicide risk, wow. all these other health outcomes that are so much more serious than, and again, this is not to downgrade your experience of stress because your stress is real when you have to stand up to somebody around homophobia, around transphobia. But it is it is so important. And I think our discomfort oftentimes pales into other in comparison to other people's risk of really just not being safe. Like I, I noticed that you know, as a cis person, I have to stand up more. And even as a straight passing, I hate that freaking word, but people don't even realize I'm queer because mm-hmm. I'm married to you. And then sometimes that's very frustrating. Like I do feel like, okay, you know, I'm queer. I've told you so many times I'm queer. You know, you know me, <laughs> you know, my work, mm-hmm. you know, my life a little bit. Mm-hmm. And people forget because we just go back to, you know, being heterocentric. But other times I, I benefit from that privilege. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, there's so many things here. I'm just listening and absorbing. And, and, and you're right. I, I mean, I'm afraid. I'm fearful of being wrong. But that perfectionism stops me from or could stop me from standing up, from speaking up. And you said, think about, you know, you have a nervous system. You feel uncomfortable when something's wrong. And when I step back for a minute and I think about what about the person who does identify like that? Like what kind of stress are they under in this environment when somebody else is saying something that is hurting them? I, I feel a responsibility to stand up Mm -hmm. and then and i think you don't have to have all the answers like i I think sometimes we don't stand up because we're like well what if somebody argues with me and i think it's also not about us versus them it's not like oh i'm an ally and you're not an ally or Mm. i'm an accomplice and you're just an ally it's not about status because then that is really just centering yourself it's about Mm -hmm. okay here's justice like i don't even love the language of dei because i feel like it's just been commodified or whatever Mm -hmm. but like when Mm -hmm. we think about justice this is about we've got this one life to live we've got one planet we've got one community around the world let's let's stand up for what we feel is right and let's be imperfect and let's leave space for nuance and growth and repair um i screwed up big time yesterday with some language Mm -hmm. and i had to just pull back and apologize and of course my first reaction because we're all (laughs) Mm self-centered we want to protect ourselves is like how do i how do i protect myself i wasn't even truthfully thinking about like well how do i make amends and i had to in that moment stop myself in that imperfect moment. So so I wanted to, before we go, share some actions. So I interviewed Adam Maurer, Davin Seabaron, as well as Jamie Pandit for the Astroglide blog. And together, we put together a list of actions that folks can take to support loved ones near and far who are queer, who are trans, who are gender nonconforming and otherwise marginalized due to sexuality. And one of the first things that came up is talk to people who wouldn't necessarily listen to us. So if you are straight, if you are cis, we, I'm going to put myself in both categories, I'm not straight, but I'm cis, we're more likely to get a seat at the table. And it really is our job to amplify messages and advocate for the needs of other folks. And if you are wondering what we say if we had a seat at the table, you can ask us or you can do some reading on your own, but really speak for, speak up for us, not speak for us, but speak up for us even when we're not in the room. And that's, I think, one of the keys when we go back to relationships. To me, like if I'm going to feel safe in a relationship, in this DEI event this week, we spent a lot of time talking about safety. I want to know that you stand up for these values, even if I don't hear it. It's not like, oh, don't say something queerphobic because Jess might hear and be hurt. It's like, no, don't say queerphobic shit. But sorry, ooh, I swore. That's not like go. me. That's yeah, not like it's me. It's really coming out. Don't say it because it it's harmful. So that's number one 
talk about these issues even when we're not around. And I put myself again in both categories. I need to do both. Donate to causes that benefit LGBTQIA folks. So, you know, the income gap related to gender identity and sexual orientation begins in youth. And, you know, teens who are queer and trans disproportionately deal with homelessness. There's, you know, a hashtag called trans crowdfund for links to current fundraisers if you want to just, you know, share within the community mutual aid. It doesn't have to be something for a tax receipt. You can just help somebody with their rent. And that hashtag is trans crowd fund. And you'll find that online. The third thing, and this is for me personally, we talked about this when we talked about interracial relationships, but it applies to mixed orientation, mixed gender identity relationships, is to do your own research so that the burden doesn't always fall on the other person and do your own practice, right? Like if pronouns changing the way you speak about people feels hard, go and practice. Um, you want to celebrate pride, go and learn about the history of pride, you know, update your library so that it's not just, hey, you're my gay friend, what can I ask you about gay people or you're my trans friend? Uh, and that's a big thing for safety in relationships so that you don't create, first of all, it's very hard to have equitable, fruitful, fulfilling relationship if you're in that student-teacher dynamic because it also replicates a parent-child dynamic and that's a whole other kind of psychological and relational can of worms. A big one is just listening and believing because individuals' experiences are unique and personal. So when someone says, you know, I'm experiencing this discrimination, listen and learn and don't always feel you need to chime in with, you know, well, here's my story. And then the big thing I think more theoretically is just to decenter yourself, like amplify the work of LGBTQIA plus folks who have been putting in the time and effort and make sure you're giving credit where credit is due. I mentioned already we all need to be working on our own biases and acknowledging you know, our own privilege and it's an ongoing process. And uh, again, I think we have to get used to not being perfect. I think that for me and so many of us, that's the scariest thing. Oh man. Yeah. No, I, I definitely fall into that boat. I don't ever want to screw up, but it's like, that's human. That's, you know, and if you're doing all of these things that you just said, educating yourself, it's going to become less likely mm -hmm. and it will still happen. Absolutely. And uh, it's going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> Next, we have recognized that our experiences of sexual orientation and gender identity also intersect with layers of our identity, right? So there's that, you know, obviously Kimberly Crenshaw, we credit with intersectionality theory, but it's not just I'm gay or it's not just I'm trans. It's also, you know, what is our race, our class, our body type, our age, our immigration status, ability, disability. And there's kind of no monolith, right? Because I have ran into that where it's like, well, my gay friend said or my that's cool. Then they can speak for themselves. Like I don't I don't pretend to speak for ever, anyone but myself, really. I'm now I've compiled this with Davin, Adam and Jamie. So I'll say that they're to credit for this, but I don't speak for them and they're not the same person. They are three different people. I mean, I'm only disappointed because as a fellow sportsman, I would have enjoyed <laughs> sitting in with Adam to have this conversation. Perhaps we could have spoken about the sports. We have to get Adam back on the podcast to talk about sex and sports. <laughs> we're going to do it. We're going to do a podcast, sex and sports with Adam Maher. <laughs> Last couple, be open to being corrected. You don't have to have all the answers. Be open to learning. And then finally is, you know, take action when it comes to policy and laws. So anti-trans laws, the volume of anti-trans legislation is tragically too great to list and but there is a live tracker like the transformation project online I can mm. put the link in there has a live tracker so you can look at how you can take action in your local area especially more American-centric in your state so like where you can sign letters of support where you can donate to local organizations where you can send messages to lawmakers and I'll put the link in 
but um, there it's there's one called theard.com. So the-ard.com. So just some thoughts, imperfect thoughts, as we celebrate Pride all year long and hone in on this research today. And that's it. Amazing. Lots of uh, lots of great content today. I think so. I want to say a couple of things. Thank you so much for the folks who are writing the supportive reviews. We really, really, really appreciate it. We do see them. Même les, les personnes en français. Je peux parler en français comme l'autre fois. Oui. <laughs> On a reçu un, I don't know how you say review. Uh, I'm not sure. Fi, to... Yeah, en français. And we, we see you. We acknowledge you. Merci beaucoup. Dans <laughs> tous les langues. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get Next time it's going to be French. in Spanish. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, we don't have any Spanish reviews. So I know people are bilingual, trilingual, quadlingual, way more lingual than me. Before we go, we have reactivated the code podcast to save 25% off of our video courses at happiercouples.com. So if you're interested in boosting confidence, learning new techniques, slowing down, being more mindful, perhaps learning to last longer in bed, if that's something you're into, happiercouples.com, video courses with audio guides, worksheets, all that jazz. We've reactivated that code, podcast, save 25%. Go check it out. That's all she wrote. Thanks for being here, babe. Thank you. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Improve your life.